Hello there, welcome to Turkey Book Talk. This is episode number 128. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Jan Marcus Vermel. He's a doctoral candidate at the University of Constance and he's just completed his thesis examining Islamism in Turkey from the 1950s to 2000, looking at the social and intellectual roots behind it and the transformations that it's undergone over the years. In the interview, we talk about all that as well as about the interactions between Turkish political Islam and broader global Islamist currents and the uncertain future that it may be facing in Turkey today. But before we get started, first let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including PDF transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% of the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Jan Marcus Vermel. First of all, I started by asking him how he got interested in studying Islamist movements in Turkey in the first place. Traditionally in Turkey, there were kind of a bias relating to studies of of the uh, of Islamist movements in Turkish history because they were obviously outside the uh, the official narrative of Turkish secularism and yeah, not really a legitimate field uh, of study for Turkish academics and that continued for quite a while at least up until the 1990s and in a sense up till today I mean working in this field is often seen as a kind of personal identification like yeah, I'm studying the Islamist movement and I'm kind of involved with them or at least sympathize with them and this often blocked blocked the research or new intellectual appropriation of the field and yeah I thought I could do some Something new and uh, something innovative in this field and I hope I could uh, succeed uh, in a way. Now your work reminds really that uh, political Islam, Islamism, far from being this kind of essential nature of Islam or a timeless thing that was always existing, it really emerged and flourished at a particular historical juncture, at least in this kind of modern form yes. that we recognize 
and in a particular generation. So in Turkey, it really emerged in the 1960s and 70s and then flourished in the 1980s and 90s. I just wonder if you could talk a bit about why political Islam emerged in the form that it did at the time that it did. You reference at one point, quote, the longing for order and wholeness after periods of perceived rapid change and temporal acceleration that saw familiar worlds collapse and disappear. Is that a good place to start or what were the kind of social underpinnings uh, that provided the groundwork for this political Islam movement to emerge? Well, first of all, I think we should distinguish between the historical early Cold War settings and the Turkish Islamism that emerged at that time, the Mukaddesachi Islamism, which is like a more self-contained Turkish current. And then in the 1970s, 1980s, really, you have this new Islamism that is very much different from the, from the older one, but retains some features of the older one, actually, as well, which is more influenced by global occurrence of Islamism. And if we start with the, the first one, in the 1950s, uh, really, you, of course, have the old early Cold War setting and, yeah, the general anti-communist atmosphere uh, of the time that was really dominant then also in the in the discourse of the emerging Islamist movement at that time. And, yeah, you have an Islamism that is dominated by urban elites, but it's also very much focused on, on the rural setting in Anatolia. Whereas then in the 1970s and 1980s, everything moves to an urban uh, scene. And yeah, you have a much different form of urban activism. Students, student activists involved in the movement uh, and a very much more broader political radicalism involved in, in that era. And that perhaps indicates why there was this preoccupation with uh, order and wholeness that sort of really comes through um, when we're looking at these subjects. It was kind of a reaction in a way to this perceived fragmentation that you talk about, you know, the kind of rapid changes that are associated with modernity and particularly urbanization. This idea of um, the dangers of fragmentation, the threat really of modernity, it's quite easy to see why this stuff resonated emotionally and why people sort of had these ideas of visions even of... Uh, immaculate perfect orderliness mm -hmm. and harmony and yes. that was really at the core of a lot of this the, the early sort of 1950s style islamist uh, political thinking you know this idea of orderliness and harmony as a way as a kind of buttress really against chaos or the fragmentation of modernity that was what was underpinning a lot of it yeah, already in the 1950s, they have a strong idea about like a new order, well, an entirely harmonious order, like uh, in social equilibrium. But then in the later second generation Islamism, if you want to refer to it that way, it becomes much more detailed and uh, moves into the personal sphere. So it it's then becomes about uh, like really personal behavior and how you live your life and how you act and how you walk on the street to every single detail. So the, the perfect order that Islamists imagined then becomes much more perfect in the sense of complete and covering every aspect of life. Whereas before, it was more an idea about equilibrium and uh, social harmony. So there is also another transformation that, that occurred between the early Cold War Islamism and then the late Cold War in 1970s, 1980s Islamism. 
In that first generation, I wonder if we could talk a bit about the importance of urbanization, because there was this massive yeah. process of urbanization, particularly from the 1950s. It was this big rural to urban shift that uh, had enormous social consequences. And it really um, laid the groundwork, actually, for the extraordinary social and political turbulence of the 1960s and 1970s in Turkey. There was this rapid mushroom-like spread of shanty towns or gejikondus in Turkish on the edge of major cities. How important were was migration, urbanization, and also Gejikondus in providing the kind of grassroots that allowed political Islam to flourish in this era? Yes, exactly. Very crucial social background process, actually, that led to the emergence of the Islamist movement. And it first becomes important during the 1960s to 1970s, where you have a new kind of student activism. And those students participating there were usually from uh, from rural backgrounds. And then they became Islamist with their move uh, to the larger metropoles and usually starting to study there, which would be then... Uh, mainly in Istanbul, but uh, to a degree also in Ankara. But then the new settings during uh, the 1980s, uh, mainly, is really this unhinged uh, urbanization that you mentioned. And the Islamist movement, both socially and intellectually, engage with this uh, rapid urbanization. And yeah, for example, in social terms, they successfully interact with networks based uh, on the, uh, the hometowns of rural to urban migrants, which you call in Turkish the Hemşe, Hemşeri, uh, networks of uh, such a kind. And yeah, intellectually, it's a similar story. The Islamist movement reflects uh, very broadly on the, on the urban condition and feelings of despair or uprootment, stuff like that. It's uh, very dominant in, in the Islamist discourse. And yeah, what we talked about before, about order, nizam, yeah, it's also, I read it as a kind of answer to that problems in uh, and experience of, of the new urban urban settings and migrant that ca came there, uh, often with less education and is looked down upon by the established uh, urban uh, population. And I think Islamism in Turkey, as well as in many other examples, all over the Muslim world, uh, integrated with this with this scene, this social scene, or this the kind of uh, new urban scene that was emerging in this setting. Now, a key figure in laying the foundations of Islamist thought and practice in Turkey was Necip Fazıl Kusakurek, and he's still revered today. Actually, so from this era, he's probably the figure who has who's had the the longest hold on the popular imagination. Actually, and uh, we still hear him quoted often by uh, President Erdogan, even, and he often pops up in sort of campaign videos. And he's had this very tenacious hold, and probably is the most uh, prominent and well-known figure from uh, Islamist political thinking of the the kind of mid-20th century. Could you just talk about who was he, what did he say, and why is he significant? Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, Najib Fazl is probably the most colourful figure on Turkish far right in, in the early to mid Cold War Cold War setting. Yeah, he was influential for for the Islamist movement both in organizational and strategic in terms of worldview, but also like yeah, really laying the intellectual foundations of this unique Turkish brand of Islamism which which I call uh Mukadisachi Islamism, 
which is like based on a worldview that is more spiritual version of Islamism, if we like to call it that way, and was centered around an idea of a new individual or a new self, if you want to call it that way, a new self that would be spiritually or metaphysically rooted and would then be stronger and more capable because of that rooting. And yeah, would then be more longer term, be also be more capable, more determined in a political sense like yeah helping turkey to rise again or develop develop industries or uh, regain political might like uh, yeah there was some of the basic idea and Neji Fassel was uh, really one of the originators to get, together with another figure uh, Nurettin Topçu of this brand of islamism and it's related to his in- influence up to today obviously today's politicians and several of the prominent figures we know today grew up reading reading his poetry reading his political tractates and some of them actually knowing him personally yeah the connections are there and they are still uphold yeah and a lot of your research uses the uh, islamist magazine sector that really grew exponentially during this period in question you know the 1960s and 70s in particular just take us into that sector you know how did it develop who were buying these magazines and where were they reading them what was the target audience you know what how did they emerge in the period in question Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a very uh, crucial question because the Islamist uh, magazine sector was really, yeah, the most important tool to engage with the public and yeah, to recruit new followers, to communicate and discuss and yeah, strategize sort of in within the, uh, their own community. And uh, it was uh, really there since late Ottoman era and then, well, took a kind of bump during, during the Kemalist era. Yeah, with actually no further uh, magazines being available at that time and then it re-emerges during the 1940s and then the 1950s mainly in the early Cold War setting where you have like a handful of very crucial publications in the field and then there is another transformation yeah in the 1980s it's really a broad broad sector and it's so broad that it has its own mainstream and niche publications in that field like there are the main Mainstream publications and then are more sub subcurrent publications that are more intellectually inclined or sympathizing with the Iranian Revolution or, for example, Kurdish uh, Kurdish Islamist publications. So it really becomes a, a broad, amazingly broad, broad field. And if you happen to be interested, it there's a great project that is completely free of charge and can be accessed by everyone. It's called the Islamic Dergile Project, and you can have access to all those magazines from the different areas. Now, it's quite important, I think, to try and get back into the mindset, really, of this era. 20th century, we're talking about the onset of the Cold War, and this is really crucial, I think, in understanding the mindset, really, of so many Islamist activists. They were hugely motivated against communism, and Moscow really loomed large in a lot of their ideological material. The Soviet Union was seen as this enormous threat to the religion, and while there was no sort of great love for the US, I think 
think this is probably the most difficult part to understand, you know, or to try and remember. It's the threat that the Soviet Union was perceived to pose. Could you just talk about that aspect of things? You know, it's like I say, it's quite difficult to kind of imagine ourselves back into, you know, that mindset, you know, 60 years on even more. But um, just talk about how Islamist activists viewed the Soviet Union and how that uh, looming sort of shadow shaped their thoughts and shaped what they did and the positions that they took on various things. Yes, again, it would be useful to distinguish between the, the early Cold War Islamism in Turkey and then the mid to late Cold War Islamist currents. And uh, you really have a crucial transformation between those two. As you mentioned, in the early Cold War settings for yeah, the Mukadisachi Islamist at that time, anti-communism was a crucial motivating element. And it was also an element which gained them kind of halfway uh, legitimacy within the Turkish setting. I mean, they were critical of the West, but at times even had a positive image of the West. Like, at least they are not materialist, Marxist, kind of atheists, political force on the world stage. So yeah, the West, the, the view of the West was a bit more positive in that regard, even if they don't really love or like the West. But it changed in the late Cold War setting, where you have different influences like uh, the Iranian Revolution and strong anti-Westernist uh, sentiment involved there, possibly also the decline of the communist bloc, and then things like yeah, the dominance of the leftist discourse during the 1970s, which uh, then led to a transformation in this uh, view of the main adversary the west moved into into that uh, position and the communist bloc then moved to second place first and then after the collapse of the soviet union pretty much completely disappears from from islamist discourse and then the the west is left as the main adversary and also let's try and probe a bit here how you know its opponents saw political islam there's this strand that we can trace going back decades really of turkish republicans and leftists long accusing islamism and political islamist actors as basically being part of this plot by uh, us imperialism essentially to control turkey and to keep turkey loyal to this broader geopolitical block and so they sort of represent these forces as being fundamental infringements basically on the the nation's independence could you just talk about that aspect you know what are the origins of those claims and do they have any grounding at all I mean, there's a tendency, obviously, towards conspiracy thoughts in, in many political uh, currents in Turkey as well as in other places. And matter of fact, of course, in Islamism, uh, with very highly yeah, anti-Semitic conspiracy the theories, uh, it's uh, present there as well. And it often seems to me that it's kind of masking one's own failures or other reasons for the emergence of the Islamist movement and obviously also ignoring its, uh, its deep social rooting and and also its deep discursive tradition uh, in Turkey as well as in other parts of the Muslim world. I think one reason has to do also with the official discourse in Turkey that was left some section of the population really surprised when in the mid-90s you suddenly had an Islamist movement emerging, supposedly suddenly of course, kind of the social self-observation mechanisms 
that didn't work there and that left parts of the population surprised of this kind of sudden rise. And then you have a, an easy explanation for that, which is they are, they are supported by the CIA and Mossad or something like that. And yeah, but of course, on the other hand, it does not mean that there were no contacts whatsoever between political Islam or some individual figures or movement on that part and Western intelligence on the other hand. And if you're interested in that in a more grounded fashion, I can refer to Murat Yetkin's recent book. It's called in Turkish, the Meraklesi Çin Casusla Kitabı. And he talks about some of those contents that actually happened during the Cold War when Western intelligence, yeah, was kind of inclined to find, yeah, to find opponents of uh, communism in the, in the Muslim world and to work towards common strategic goals. There's also an idea that's popular among the left that the 1980 coup crushed the left essentially and opened up this vacuum for Islamists to step into. Particularly, it's interesting when we talk about urbanization because there's this uh, sense that there was a very active organized left that was really mobilizing in the 1960s and 1970s. And they really sought to plant roots in these Gejikondu areas of on the urban periphery that we're talking about. And that was a real kind of social grounding for them. And then, of course, that was all wiped away when all those activists were kind of rounded up after the 1980 coup or banned at the very least. And there was this big vacuum that opened up socially for political Islamists, actors, activists to step into. And they did that by providing some of these services that were previously being provided by both leftist groups and uh, right wing nationalist groups in these kind of Gejikondu neighborhoods and elsewhere. Just talk about that. I mean, is that idea that the left was crushed after 1980 and the post-1980 coup regime opened up space for Islamism to emerge and to become stronger? Is that a convincing argument? Just probe that, that line of thought a bit. Yes. Um, I mean, given the important and crucial routing and organizational developments in Islamism that took place before 1980, it seems a bit simplistic at first, maybe. But on the other hand, given the dimension, the sheer dimension of the political outreach and the intellectual output that the Islamists showed after the 1980 coup, it's also not unfounded either. And there are some crucial points that changed in the post-coup setting, actually which, for example, involve restrictions on Islamist media, which uh, largely disappeared after 1980. And uh, yeah, the rising interaction with uh, global Islamism as well. And yeah, as you mentioned, the crushing of the left, yeah, which left social organizing spaces and also intellectually speaking, uh, discursive spaces to the Islamist movement. And you even have that story in many personal narratives or biographies where people come from leftist political political socialization to to an Islamist one in the 1980s or sometimes in the, even in the 1990s. Yeah, it's really interesting to think there are a lot of examples of contemporary politicians on the right in Turkey who actually, when they started out, often in the sort of 1960s and 70s, they were leftist activists and they basically just gradually moved right as time moved on. I don't know, it's, it's funny to, to see how things change over time, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, one of the central questions that I also started this this research with was this firm commitment that they often show, like, you know, the loyalty to what they call the dava, the, the mission. Those are often stories of lifetime commitment, lifetime loyalty. And I found that fascinating, like... 
how does this movement achieve this uh, lifelong loyalty? I mean, even if there are transformations and people don't necessarily think the same thoughts that they had like uh, during the 1970s or something like that, they still think of themselves, they conceive themselves as part of this movement and yeah, often remain loyal for this such long periods. It's a fascinating, fascinating feature of this movement. There's a transnational aspect as well that we should address because it's impossible to consider political Islam in Turkey as being sort of sealed off from the rest of the world. There was a much broader global wave and trend that was going on simultaneously around the same years of the late 20th century. A concurrent rise of Islamist movements in almost every part of the Islamic world. Could you just talk a bit about that? How did Turkish Islamist activism engage with these broader global social trends and how was it shaped by them? Yes. During the early Cold War settings, uh, we already had uh, the emergence of this uh, bit more self-contained uh, Turkey-centric Mukhadisachi Islamist movement. So during the 1960s and 1970s, when the first translations of like really the classics of uh, global Islamist literatures uh, appeared in Turkey, you already had this established trend and uh, this established movement in Turkey. So it then goes on in 1970s, 1980s and still uh, 1990s where you have participation increasing and a lot of personal networks appear and like both personal and intellectual uh, flows and transfers networks uh, really appear in all kinds of directions uh, with the Muslim world. But then the outcome is like because you have this established indigenous tradition uh, is a very unique outcome that is unique to Turkey. It's a kind of a local local vernacular so to speak of uh, global islamism in turkey and then this vernacular actually develops its own internationalism and yeah the turkish traditional islamism becomes more international and more outward looking more oriented towards other islamist movements in other parts of uh, the muslim world and also starting to perceiving itself as part of this global wave and part of this global upsurge there's a quote from the dissertation that I'll just read out here. You say at one point, quote, Turkish Islamism, just like many other Islamisms in the Muslim world, had its peak as a movement in opposition. As soon as Islamism became the hegemonic force, many of its defining characteristics disappeared and its assertive imaginations of a new world, of a new order and a new selfhood proved unattainable. That's quite a, an assertive claim. Just wonder if you could probe it a bit. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, of course, the so-called failure, failure of political Islam or Islamism, it's a very old debate. And I would suggest to speak not of political Islam, but of uh, different versions of it, which then might succeed or fail or decline or whatever. In general, political Islam has always shown a potential for renewal and metamorphosis. But yeah, if you look at uh, the current state and the dominant Turkish model of Islamism, then and uh, at the moment, yeah, it seems pretty obvious that it has run out of steam, yeah, both in terms of political idea, but also in terms of its intellectual rooting and its uh, intellectual, intellectual foundations. And it really has something to do as well with maximalist vision or to provide like a new order or to provide a new, new version of modernity that was like far-fetched from the very start. 
That's another long quote that I want to talk about here because, again, it gestures, I think, to the contemporary situation. Uh, you say, quote, the new urban setting, and this is talking about the 1960s, 1970s. So the new urban setting contributed to fears of disappearing social bonds and individual atomization. Alarmist rhetoric evoked dangers and outer and inner enemies who conspired against cultural foundations. Moral panic often blew instances of violated morality, mostly stories of anarchic sexual transgression out of proportion, forecast in the collapse of social order. A more analytical language described the individual as alienated and not at peace with him or herself. It diagnosed a lack of purpose and drive, constant psychological crisis and depression. Novels and other writings featured the same motif in their characters, illustrating the loss of roots and stable ground in personal terms. Recurrent images like these bore witness to fears of collectives disintegrating and individuals vanishing. And the reason that this passage stood out, I think, is because I wonder if we can perhaps trace sort of similar themes happening today. You know, you look at polling that's carried out in Turkey and you see that there's this great anxiety across constituencies, really, about this rapid social change. And that you can see in all levels of society. You know, there's this concern about a loss of uh, respect even among young people. And I think you can perhaps arguably even see this reflected in the appeal of sort of radical political solutions to solve these issues. And perhaps the most salient here is this rise of nationalist sentiment that's really dominating these days. I mean, do you think it's possible to draw comparisons between the period that you were looking at mostly in this dissertation, the 1970s, and today? I don't know about today's setting, but uh, what always came, came to my mind writing these lines that you just quoted, I mean, is there are some fascinating similarities uh, with settings in completely different parts of the world, like Europe in, in the in the era between the two world wars, for example, and the kind of social and cultural alienations that you could visit in urban settings at that time, and also the radical political solutions that emerged from that settings. Yeah, I found that quite fascinating, actually, uh, more than today's setting, because today's alienations don't don't doesn't seem to be that that deep. So while we're talking about the present day, I mean, wonder if we could, I wonder if we could finish by just speculating a bit really about the future of political Islam in Turkey. There's been a lot of talk, we've talked about it on this podcast actually, about possibly political Islam in Turkey being on decline. It seems increasingly like a project of a past generation. Indeed, reading your dissertation, it's the generation that you studied. And these figures that emerged in this era are still on the scene today. And there aren't new ones emerging. The kind of rising stars of politics are all people who've come afterwards and they've all emerged in different political currents, actually. If you think about someone like Suleiman Soylu, he's not somebody who has a political Islamist background. He's just a more general man of the right, I suppose. So what do you make of this commentary that's coming from a lot of um, sensible people saying that actually counterintuitively, the Islamist project today has kind of passed its peak and actually it's no longer the kind of force, either intellectually or even politically, that it once was? Yes, it's really one of the oldest debates in, in the field, like in the study of Islamism. Yeah, really going back to the early 90s and French scholar Olivier Roy, uh, who would speak about the failure uh, of political Islam. I mean, the project has been declared uh, dead now for how many times? I don't even know. I haven't counted. But it still showed some potential for renewal and uh, metamorphosis. So I would suggest not to speak about the failure of political Islam in general, but rather of 
different versions of it who then fail or might decline. Because in the much larger frame, I think Islamism was a, was an answer to to an age of political ideologies and yeah, the Islamic world really losing hegemonic status in its own realms and the kind of reckoning with with the West and Western power and Western hegemony in much different fields from politics to military to intellectual sphere and a general reckoning with modernity itself. So I would refrain from this premature death certificates for political Islam and to rather see what will happen in a kind of more multipolar world that is uh, that we see uh, emerging today. That was Jan Marcus Vermel. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 128. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. You can subscribe by going to their brand new website, turkeyrecap.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bye. <laughs>